Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, friends, let me add my welcome to Will's. Uh, My name is David Gibson. I'm the minister here at Trinity. If I haven't met you yet, had a chance to say hello to you. I hope I can do that afterwards, after our worship this morning. And I want to ask you to turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 1. And you'll find that on page 254 in the black Bibles in front of you or around you, page 254 for 2 Samuel, chapter 1. I want to apologize to those of you who watch uh, on camera each week, those of you who are not with us and who catch up uh, last week. Our video recording didn't work, unfortunately. It is there on our website on audio, uh, but hopefully from uh, today onward you're able to watch and share, share with us in our worship. So let me read God's Word. This is the passage we read together last week, and we're coming back today to look at all of these 16 verses together. Let's hear the word of the Lord. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept. And fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. He struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Amen. Let's pause and pray together. Lord God in heaven, because you are from everlasting to everlasting, the words that you speak are living and real and true. The glories of your word this very day are the greatest sign of your presence among us. And so we thank you that you are here and with us. And in your Son, our Lord Jesus, our King, and in the power of your Spirit, you are speaking still. And so open our hearts and minds our very lives to hear you and receive what you say, for we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. 1st of January, the year 2000. Did you know, friends, did you know this, that Ashurst Wood, Ashurst Wood, a tiny hamlet in East Sussex, in England, did you know that on the 1st of January 2000, Ashurst Wood declared itself independent from the United Kingdom. You ever remember hearing about that? Independent from the government and independent from taxation. They called themselves the People's Republic of Ashurst Wood Nation State, or PRONS, if you put the letters together. Tiny, tiny little village in East, East, East Sussex. And they wrote to the Queen to tell her what they were doing. They wrote to Tony Blair to declare themselves independent, the then Prime Minister. They drafted a constitution. They set up organized checkpoints all along the road to East Grinstead. They even had a retired army colonel overseeing the defenses. To top it all off, friends, they even issued passports and visas if you wanted to get in to Ashurst Wood. If you look it up on Wikipedia, if you think I'm making this up, it's true, it happened. It was a rebellion against a sovereign state. And the reason you have never heard of it until this morning is because the rebellion in Ashurst Wood collapsed quickly. It was an amusing rebellion. Do you know why the rebellion collapsed? Why it is no longer a, sovereign, no longer a republic within a sovereign state? because they couldn't issue visas fast enough for all the milkmen and postmen who were required to get in to give the people their supplies. It was a mistake, an amusing mistake, an ill-conceived mistake. You, you would never do something like that, would you? I'd never do that, would I? Psalm 47, the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. The Lord is the King over all the earth. So we'd never rebel, would we? We all bow the knee and worship Him, right? In Second Samuel chapter 1 this morning, as the story begins to get going, this story begins with a lie. 
It begins with a dreadful mistake, with the gravest of consequences, as this young Amalekite soldier comes panting into David's court, wearing on the outside of his body all the outward signs of grief, but carrying in his heart a very deliberate deceit. And friends, in 16 verses here in front of us this morning, here we have the story of the world writ large on our 1,000 years before Christ's stage. That is what we are looking at here, the story of the world writ large. And here is the story. Subterfuge against God's king is always doomed to fail. Rebellion will always fail. I want to simply show us two features of this story and what we read together, two features that are part of why God gave it to us to help us hear God's voice today in story form. I hope over the coming weeks and months we're going to enjoy this part of the Bible, having stories. God gave us stories. Two things here to do with this young Amalekite man. There's something that this, this poor man gets beautifully right. And there's something that he gets tragically wrong. So we're going to have two points this morning. And I'm going to start the first point now, but I'm not going to tell you what the first point is until we're about halfway through it. And the reason for that is that I simply want us to feel the pain of what is happening here and to sense the despair and to taste the agony of the scene before we see the beauty of what it is that the Amalekite gets right. I think, I think we'll feel the story better that way. So all I'm going to do is give you a few words from the first point, and it's this, a world of mess. This is a world of mess. Isn't that what you thought as, as, as we read it, as we looked at it together? This is a world of mess. Second Samuel last week, I said, remember, it, it is a story about the world that we live in, and it is a world of mess. For what is happening here in these 16 verses as the curtain comes up. Do you remember from last week? The curtain comes up, and as we sit in our seats and look, the first thing we notice is that there are dead bodies everywhere. Verse 1, there are dead bodies in the north of Israel as Saul and his son Jonathan lie dead. There are dead bodies in the south. Verse 2, as David has been striking down the Amalekites, Friends, look at verse 2 onwards, not just verse 1. Look at, look at the way it flows. Just feel the story. What kind of music is playing as the curtain comes up? What kind of lighting is on the stage? See, it, it, it's, there in almost, it's, it's there in almost every verse, isn't it? Look at verse 2. A man comes from Saul's camp. Is he celebrating with his clothes torn and dirt on his head? Where have you come from, David says. Verse 3, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. I've escaped, verse 4, because the people have fallen and are dead and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Look at verse 6. I, I happened to be on Mount, Mount Gilboa and I, I saw Saul's very life ebbing away from him and I killed Saul as an act of mercy. Verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept. And fasted all the way down to verse 16. Verse 15, he struck this man down so that he died. 
These are days of catastrophic misery. See, just think back earlier this year. Do you remember the early days of the Ukraine war? To our astonishment, war broke out in the world that we know. You remember those, those early sensations, the palpable sense of, of terror as we imagined what it would be like to have your whole way of life taken away from you and turned upside down and you moved from living normally to, to living in a bunker below ground, not knowing where your next meal was going to come from. Maybe the closest many of us have ever come to that kind of disorientation was the pandemic that we've lived through. The, the confusion, the fear, the anger. But some of you in this room, more than that, have lived through war, haven't you? You can almost still smell the cordite in the air. And we're meant to read these 16 verses feeling that that is what this would have been like. Listen, listen to one commentator. He says this, The Philistines had carried the day and trounced Israel. King Saul had been severely wounded and not wanting the Philistines to have the delight of slowly torturing him to his end, Saul had fallen on his own sword. It was a dark, dark day for Israel. Jonathan, Saul's son and David's friend lay dead. Life was bleak and dark and bloody and gray in the kingdom of God. Life was bleak and dark and bloody and gray in the kingdom of God. You know, last Sunday I told you about the friend that I just sat with a few days before. This friend who is facing sorrow upon sorrow in their life. And my friend said to me in that conversation, my friend said, look, don't you think this is the end of the world that we're living through? This person said, I I think it's the end of the world. They started listing all the things we've been through, COVID, the recession that we're heading into, the war in Ukraine that's continuing and kind of numbing our senses, the cost of living crisis. Everything seems broken, my friend said. Everybody seems angry. There's climate change problems on top of it, surely we're all going to die. Surely it's the end. And you kind of look at it all, don't you? I hadn't quite put it all together like that, the way my friend had. It's quite a list, isn't it? You put it all together, maybe they're right. Maybe this is the end. Apart from the fact the Bible says we've been here before. Oh, we've been here before, friends. Don't forget your family history, your, your family history. God's people have been here before. And look, look, add to the world's mess, the church's mess, in a world of mess. And then you're really looking at bleak and dark and bloody and gray, aren't you? Do you, know, aren't you? Do you know, notice verse 12, uh, verse 12, this is God's people mourning. It's not just the world mourning. This is the house of Israel. God's people, I will be with you. You will be my treasured possession. I will bless you. The king is dead. The people are mourning and weeping. David mourns and weeps and fasts for the house of Israel. Oh, are we not grieved and heartbroken, friends, so often? So often, just this past week, since I preached last week's sermon, another pastor stepping down for inappropriate messages to a female friend. 
scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention. What about us? We, we Presbyterians, we Presbyterians seem to be able to pick a fight with our own shadow, don't we? But for our building project, the premises that we are praying and planning to renovate, we, we've put together a new video that's going to come out soon telling the story of what we're doing. And this time, as part of the story, we went around the city and we videoed all the churches that are now no longer churches that are instead pubs and clubs and hotels. Friends, do you hear the music of a chapter like this? Do you hear, do you, do you, can, can you feel it? What is the lighting on the stage here? What, what's the lighting like in your life this morning? What's your soundtrack? I think this is particularly hard for older believers, isn't it? You, you reach a certain stage in life where there is more to look back at over your shoulder than there is to look forward to ahead of you. And as you look back, you just see people down, bodies everywhere. Remember Derek Kidner? I've told you what Derek Kidner has written about so beautifully what he calls the general desolations of old age. Not only may the lights of the faculties and the senses begin to fade so that the body is declining, but so too the warm glow of old friends, familiar customs, long-held hopes. Age comes and steals each of them away. Here's what he says. All of this, all of this comes at a stage when there is no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In your early years, in the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are just setbacks. They're not disasters. You expect the sky to clear eventually, but it is hard now to adjust to the closing of that long chapter and to know that in the final stretch there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again and time will no longer heal but kill. So in a world of mess, brothers and sisters, in a world of mess, what can possibly be right? Is there anything good? Anything hopeful? Uh, here is what this young man shows us. Put your eyes on verse 10, please. The young man comes and stands before David and says about Saul, So I, I stood beside Saul and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. Here is what this young man gets right. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord, you. Are you ready for point one yet, halfway through it? Here's point one. I think we're ready. Do not forget the presence of the king in a world of mess. Friends, do not forget the presence of the king in a world of mess. It, it is an amazing thing. The king is dead. Saul is dead. Long live the king, David. But look who is doing this unofficial crowning. This unofficial giving David the crown before the official one would happen in a few times later. Who is the first person to recognize who David is, the king in waiting, and to pay homage to him? Who does it first? An Amalekite. 
the very first enemy that the people of God have after the Exodus are the Amalekites. In the book of 1 Samuel, God has stripped the throne from Saul because he refused to smite all the Amalekites in the way that God had told him to. And so here, amazing, the first person to bow before David, the first person to know that you are the one who is going to replace Saul as king, it is not one of God's own people. No, but one of God's enemies. And he shows us what we must never forget. He teaches us what we must always remember. Do not forget the presence of the king in a world of mess. Friends, today, whatever you have brought with you today, Jesus Christ is king. Jesus is alive and ruling and reigning over a world of darkness and bloodshed and grayness and bleakness, over a church that loses its way. Do not forget your king. Isn't it amazing? When the Lord Jesus is born, do you remember the story in the Gospels? When Jesus is born, who pays homage to him? Herod, the king, the leaders of Israel. No, it is the Magi, kings, wise people from the east. What did we sing together? You see the the second verse of Psalm 2 that we we sang together. Isn't it indescribably beautiful? You shall receive both east and west, all nations yours at your request. Remember how Mark's gospel opens? A great crowd followed Jesus from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Ah, beyond the Jordan, beyond the nations of the earth as Jesus preaches flock to him. What what does the Bible end with? What will happen at the end? The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into his kingdom. I want to encourage you this morning from the beautiful details of this story, the story that God is telling, the story of how it always is in a world of mess, that God has set his king in Zion. Now, David is good. David is great. But this unusual incident is just a little ripple in history that as one day great David's greater son comes onto the stage of world history, that ripple becomes a wave and at the end of time it will become an unstoppable tsunami. The very ends of the earth come as we pay multinational homage to the world's true, true king and fall to the ground in his presence. Do you know that this morning, friend? Do you know that right now today? You have a king. Remember these words? We've used them often in different ways. We've prayed them together. Words from Glenn Scrivener. For mistakes we cannot forget. And the sins that still beset. We have a lamb. For our anxious little realm. For the fears that overwhelm. We have a throne. For our lost and lonely hearts. For our gnarled and tangled paths. We have a shepherd. For our dry and listless souls. And For our thirst for being whole, we have living water. For regret and ravaged years, for sweet and bitter tears, we have a Father. 
The, the Amalekite gets this so right. When all is lost, find the king. When all has come apart at the seams, lay yourself at the feet of the king. And yet, and yet, this poor young lad, look what he gets wrong. Look what he gets wrong. He gets something so terribly wrong, doesn't he? I mean, what do you make of verse 15? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. He struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Point number two, friends, do not misread the character of the king in a world of sin. Don't forget his presence in a world of mess. And once you have remembered his presence, do not misread his character in a world of sin. It's one thing to know how to find the king, isn't it? That that's what he gets right. But it's another thing altogether to know the king. And that's what he gets wrong. And so here we're not just feeling in the second part, we're not just feeling the mood of the story. We need to understand the events of the story. See, from verse 1 onwards, David has been waiting and waiting, hasn't he? Waiting for news about Saul and Jonathan. What has happened to them up there in the north? There's no email, no text messages. You wait days for news. And so when this young man stumbles into David's camp, telling him about what has happened to Saul, it is all that David has to go on. And so he questions him. It begins in verse 3. The questions come all the way through the text, don't they? Where have you come from? How did the battle go? How do you know Saul and Jonathan are dead? And so on. But we know what David does not know, that at least by verse 9, the Amalekite is lying. At least by verse 9, the Amalekite is lying. Look at verse 9. The Amalekite says that King Saul said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. And immediately we think, ah, there's a problem. Just flick your page in your Bible back to chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through, that lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. Turn the page, Second Samuel chapter 1. We are now standing with the messenger in the presence of the king telling to him a barefaced lie. 
The book of First Samuel ends and the book of Second Samuel begins with two contradictory accounts of the death of Saul, the narrators and the Amalekites. And friends, you would not believe it if I told you, well, some of you would believe this, the lengths that some commentators go to to try and explain this divergence between 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel chapter 1. It's astonishing. Who, who is right? Who do we believe? How do we put these different sources together? But here's what you need. Here's the commentator who gets this right. Dale Ralph Davis, he says this, the solution is very simple. The Amalekite lied. If you ever have a choice between a narrator and an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. Have you ever met an Amalekite you could trust? No, is the answer. This young man, this, this poor young man is, is right to seek the king in a world of mess, but he is wrong to sin in the presence of the king. Brothers and sisters, the light just shines from the pages, doesn't it? Do not misread the character of the king in a world of sin. The, the Amalekite misreads David's character. Do you know how he misreads it? Look at what David himself actually says later on about this incident. Just turn to chapter 4, verse 10. We're kind of coming to it cold, aren't we? We're beginning to feel our way into 2 Samuel. What? Who do we believe here? Why is David doing what he's doing and so on? Here's David helping us. Chapter 4, verse 10. He's now telling the story of what we've just read. When one told me, that's the Amalekite, when he told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news to me. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his good news. Ah, do you see it? This is what is going on here in chapter 1. This young man knows that David is the king in waiting. David is the king in the wings, the king in the shadows, the king in hiding, the king who is waiting for Saul to die, surely, so that he can be king. So can you imagine it now, that the, the opening of the chapter? I mean, can you imagine getting to David's camp in Ziklag? Imagine this man traveling, probably for days to get there, and he's sleeping rough, and he, he, he's got no food, he's hungry, but he's thinking to himself, only two more days, I'm going to get to Ziklag, and He's rubbing his hands. When I tell David that his enemy is dead, I'm made for life. Oh, I'll be on the massage bench this time tomorrow. His enemy is dead. I'm the one bringing the news. It's what people do, isn't it? Dale Ralph Davis says, this man is after a government job. That's what he wants. They say that the, the President of the United States never has more friends than the day after the election. You remember me? Sure, you, what are you going to do for me in the, in the administration? What, what a shock here. From the hand of the king and the mouth of the king, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Oh, can you see how he misreads the character of the king? Here's what he gets wrong. He thinks that David's ways are like his ways. But David's righteous character shatters the idea that you can profit from your sins, doesn't it? 
This man assumes that because Saul wanted to kill David, that David would have wanted to kill Saul. He assumes that because murder lives in the heart of one king, surely it will be there waiting in the heart of another king. I mean, that's how the world works, right? That's what leaders do. They murder and kill and betray and so on. No, David hears of the death of the failed king, the unrighteous king, the, godly, the ungodly king. He hears of the death of the king who wanted his own head. And what does David say? Verse 11, he took his clothes and tore them. And they mourned and wept. Verse 17, he lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Can't we see here even in all of David's fallen imperfections, of which there were so many, can't we see here a shadow of the the perfect perfections, the beautiful perfections of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ? God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, the prophet Ezekiel says. What, What does Jesus say as he comes to Jerusalem? That the the very capital city that should be welcoming him and enthroning him, the very capital city that will see him executed. Oh, I long to gather you. Long to gather you like a hen gathering her young under her wings. John Calvin says this to us. He says, have you ever reckoned? I wonder if this is true, friends. This This is an astonishing thing to think about. Have you ever reckoned with the fact that your King, your Lord Jesus Christ, does not harbor the vindictiveness in his heart towards your enemy that you assume he must have? Because you harbor it. Have you ever reckoned with the fact that the Lord Jesus does not harbor vindictiveness in his heart towards his enemies and towards my enemies? Listen to Calvin's words. We really must remember this. For instance, when we become indignant against someone, we very often fail to take account of all the favors that God has given to the one whom we hate. As though those favors were beneath contempt. Even when we must hate and detest a person's evil side, we must not be so carried away with the violence of our feelings that we are utterly unable to accept the good in them, for then we have lost our perception and discernment. On the contrary, we must honor the Lord for everything that comes from Him. This is what we are to remember from David. Do you you notice the posture of the righteous king? What is he doing? He's weeping. He's abasing himself in, in the death of one other person and In the death of one, David sees a warning of what comes to all who do not repent. We don't do that, do we? We so often look at others' misfortune. Surely that serves them right. It's not what what the Lord Jesus teaches us. When we see tragedy, death, on a colossal scale of others, what did Jesus say? "Unless Unless you repent, you too will perish. No, the the righteous character of our king gives us no self-righteous soapboxes, does it? It only calls us to bow low and to cry out to God, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
In your anger, Lord, remember mercy. You know, in in just a moment, we're going to pray together. And it's something that we do every Sunday in our morning worship. We say the Lord's Prayer as part of our response to God after the sermon. Do you remember the words of the prayer that we'll speak in just a moment? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. That's what I've called this series of sermons on 2 Samuel. Your kingdom come. Because what we see here is a taste for us, isn't it? It's a a foreshadowing, a, a hint. It's a skeletal outline of the true and perfect kingdom that is coming. The good and glorious reign of the Lord Jesus. All that is good and right and true in David will make us cry out, won't it? It will make us cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We want to live with you. We want to live with you in your paradise garden forever. We want to be with you like that, perfectly forever. See, the the rebellion in Ashurst that we spoke about, that, that rebellion was amusing, wasn't it? Way back in the year 2000. The rebellion in the Garden of Eden at the dawn of time, what was that like? Oh, there is no tragedy like it. No tragedy like that rebellion. When God's creatures spat in the face of the king and said to God, you can leave now. You can leave. We'll take it from here. Brothers and sisters this morning, do not misread the character of the king in a world of pain. Oh, you cannot raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. It cannot be done. It just cannot be done. Listen to Dale Ralph Davis. He said this, The Amalekite is punished for what he said he did, even though he didn't actually do it. He received what he should have received, even though it wasn't based on fact. The judgment of God found him. Found him in his lie and repaid him in line with his intent, if not his deed. God delights in truth in the inner parts, doesn't he? Exposes us. Some have pointed out that there are always Amalekites in the church. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Who were struck down not for withholding money, but for lying about what they were giving. Jesus said there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Brothers and sisters, as we come to worship God together, we're going to sing these beautiful words of response in just a moment. King of the universe, Lord of the ages, you cannot close the door to God's king. You cannot turn out the lights and hope that no one will see. We so often think, don't we, if we're beyond the reach of one another's eye, then heaven's gaze will not see us either. No, the answer this morning is not to fight against God's anointed king, but to run to him and to lay ourselves before him, to lay ourselves at his feet. We sang it together. Adore the son. His sudden wrath can soon destroy you in your path, yet safe are all beneath his wing who hide in Christ, our Lord and King.